Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law in the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Zachary L. Catanzaro, Assistant Professor of Law at St. Thomas University School of Law, and we will be discussing his new draft paper, Beyond Incentives, Copyright in the Age of Algorithmic Production. So welcome to the show, Zach. Brian, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, pleasure's all mine. Um, love your work. Uh, I really like this paper in particular, uh, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. But for listeners who maybe haven't yet had the opportunity to read it or maybe aren't so uh, intimately familiar with copyright theory, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about copyright and specifically why we have copyright in the first place, or at least kind of why we say we have copyright. Sure. So the sort of lay perception of copyright is that copyright exists to protect art and artists. And I think that's really half the story. And it's really half the story when you start breaking down why copyright developed, how we got from the start of copyright to today, what sort of innovations, new technologies, and new mediums of expression have been sort of at the the backbone of the evolution of copyright through the last few centuries. So copyright traces its origins all the way back to the printing press, even before the concept of copyright existed. There's a lot of concern about controlling the dissemination of information after the printing press started causing waves in Europe. So a number of governments in Europe, English monarchy, the French monarchy, Belgian monarchy, the German monarchs, you pick them, they were not too keen on the populace suddenly having access to all this information, all this information that might be contrary to political or religious teachings at the time. So we started seeing some of the early forms of licensing laws in Europe, things like the printing privilege, uh, restrictions on what could be printed, how much could be printed, who could print it, where it could be printed, how much of it could be sold, where it could be sold, and so on. So these restrictions over time evolved into sort of a printer's monopoly. And one of the major players in this space was the stationaries company in London. They were the dominant printer in England for a period of several centuries. And it wasn't until around the late 18th century that the public parliament started getting a little annoyed at how abusive the stationaries company was getting with this printer's privilege. So Parliament enacted a, a very important piece of reform that formed sort of the backbone of modern copyright. That's the Statute of Anne that was enacted in 1790. And the Statute of Anne was unique for a number of reasons. It was the first time in which it wasn't about protecting the publisher anymore. It was about protecting the author. We wanted to encourage authors in this early copyright statute to produce works. So we're going to give them a, li a limited monopoly to do so. And this monopoly is given to them on the hopes that will incentivize them to make new works. This is sort of the common thread that we can trace through not only the modern English copyright system, but now the American copyright system. Because copyright, like many other aspects of the American legal system, were imported from England, uh, both before, during, and after the revolution. For many years, American courts would still look to English case law and use it for its precedential value. We see that sort of thread running throughout copyright. So if you think about copyright from a tool for incentivizing creation, we have to talk about what it is that we're trying to incentivize. 
And the main thing is not really the creation of the art itself. It's to facilitate a marketplace for creating the art, uh, manufacturing it, reproducing it into material objects, as it's called in the modern copyright statutes, and getting those works into the hands of the public. The hope being in our democratic system of government that the more information, the more knowledge capital the public has access to, the more robust the exchange of ideas will be and the better off our democracy is for it. So Congress, even before the Constitutional Conference, was very concerned about the state of the American book industry. And I, I discussed this uh, quite a bit in the paper. Uh, before and in the period leading up to the American Revolution, there wasn't really a book manufacturing trade in the United States. Most books were imported from England. There were some localized printing companies. Harvard had a press, for example. A couple of universities had their own printing presses. But for the most part, novels and books were being produced in England. They were being imported into the United States. One of the things that pissed the revolutionaries off were some of the tax stamps that were being placed on the books that they wanted access to. And one of the big concerns was, hey, we want to be able to read. This is the era of enlightenment. We want to see and read these radical ideas that are being developed in the continent. So Congress had this concern in mind. They were very concerned that the domestic book trade here in the States was being smothered by British competition. So the first copyright statute that was enacted in the United States had sort of this protectionist idea behind it, that we want to encourage an American book trade to develop. The infrastructure doesn't exist. The United States has not industrialized yet at this point. So it's going to be very difficult for American booksellers to make the investments they need to to get these printing presses running. So Congress had this very protectionist slant to copyright at the start of the history of the American copyright system. And then this was sort of the backbone, the background in which copyright evolved in the United States. As new technologies emerged, the country started to industrialize. It was around this time during the beginnings and into the middle of the Civil War period that we saw the first true medium of expression invented. We saw the widespread adoption of photography during the Civil War. And the public really embraced this technology. And they embraced it to such an extent that after the war, Congress started seriously thinking about whether they wanted to extend the copyright protection to it, because they recognized the value that this technology had, not only to the public discourse, but for the public benefit. This was one of the first real means of media consumption that the United States enjoyed, the ability to take a picture of a battle scene, sell it, get it through the wire, get it to a different part of the country, and inform the citizen, uh, the citizenry of that particular event was very important to Congress. So we started to see some reforms in this space. But it took the courts some time, it took Congress some time to catch up to the technology, which is kind of what we're seeing today with the, the AI technologies that we'll talk about in a minute. So photography comes down, we have the first seminal case finally gets up to the Supreme Court a number of decades after photography takes off in the United States, the Borough Giles case. And this case really grappled with one of the fundamental problems in copyright that we still grapple with today. If a machine participates in the creation of the work of expression, is the machine acting in an authorial capacity? And this is an important point to make because modern copyright law does not grant or protect art that's created by non-humans. We have sort of this exceptionalist approach to copyright. Only the art created by the human is important or worthy enough or aesthetically important enough for protection. 
But the court didn't go so far with this case. And now we think of photography not as the camera being the artist. It's a ridiculous statement. But the photographer is the artist. The photographer is the one who sets the scene, arranges the participants, makes the lighting choices, the background choices, those expressive contributions that we look for in copyright's modern originality standard. And we can look at a number of other new mediums, new te uh, technological developments that happened. The same conversations happened with the piano role players towards the end of the uh, 19th century. We saw concerns from Congress in this time period that this new technology was uh, resulting in co too concentrated of a market structure in the piano role player industry. So we saw some reform in the 1909 Copyright Act that on its face appears to just uh, overturn the previous Supreme Court decision on perception, which is a little outside what I get to in my paper, but was really a competition decision, a competition policy, an industrial competition policy decision that Congress made that there are certain market structures that best serve the goals of mass producing art to get it into the hands of the public. And Congress tries to be as responsive to that particular concept as they can be. We saw this again with the advent of the phonorecord, with the radio, with analog streaming, and then digital streaming, and then digital file sharing. Every time one of these new means of producing and distributing works comes out, Congress has to take a step back, realign its competition policy um, focus, and try to fit the existing copyright structure with this new technology. One of the last, perhaps, um, major points that we saw Congress do this was not with digital file sharing, believe it or not. Congress was actually thinking about digital file sharing all the way back in the 1960s, which when I got into the legislative history of the Copyright Act, surprised me. I was shocked that Congress was thinking about this when they did. It, of course, took them another 40 years to figure the problem out and come up with a quasi band-aid to the problem with the Digital Millennial Copyright Act. But the more recent um, or the, excuse me, the most recent uh, major policy shift we've seen from Congress was on that issue of protectionism that I was talking about a minute ago. For many, many, many years in the American copyright system, the goal was protecting domestic authors from foreign competition. And in fact, the uh, copyright statute itself for a very long time had certain uh, domestic manufacturing requirements baked into them to make sure that American authors, American artists, American production companies weren't being undercut by foreign competition. And then something interesting started happening in this time period. And I don't really get into this in uh, the paper we're discussing today, but it might make for an interesting discussion in a future paper. The perception of the value of art started to change in the 1950s and 1960s in this country. We started becoming the largest exporter of art and culture in the world. And now the new concern became not making sure that domestic production was being undercut by foreign production, but that domestic production was being exported and being protected overseas. So we started taking some of the international norms in copyright law a little more seriously. Things like moral rights became important because most countries that had signed the Berne Convention on copyrights had agreed that moral rights were something that was worth protecting. So Congress started to make some very uh, structural changes to copyright law in the 1980s to try to conform with these new treaty obligations as the United States finally acceded to the Berne Convention. So now we're in the current landscape. 
And we have been grappling with digital distribution for about 22 years now, post the Digital Millennial Copyright Act. Whether that act has been successful or a failure or something in the middle is a little bit beyond what we're going to talk about today. But we did at least get some policy direction from Congress and to some extent the Copyright Office and the DMCA report about how Congress envisioned the marketplace they wanted to um, sort of come into fruition over the last two decades. But the Digital Millennial Copyright Act didn't really anticipate the newest innovation in the digital space, and that's the use of generative AI tools to make the production of art itself virtually costless. Now, uh, major movie studios, music producers can be outcompeted by people working with a combination of mid-journey and some other AI tools out of their home office. So the cost reductions are so drastic, it's sort of thrown the industry into a tailspin. And this is sometimes framed as job displacement, that AI is going to come and take all the jobs away from the artists. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. And it's a point that I raise in the paper. Perhaps we'll talk about it a little, a little later in our discussion. But that's sort of the stage that we're in now. We're seeing, it might not be true post-scarcity, but it's certainly damn close at this point. We're at a point where it's not that expensive to create a very professional looking music video with very professional sounding instrumentation and perhaps vocals. Okay, that was a lot, but it was a lot of what I really like about this paper and the project. So what I'd love for you to do is like talk a little bit about the shift in how we think about copyright theory or the purpose of having copyright in the first place. Because as you say, there was a moment back in the 18th century where we said we were shifting to an author-centric vision of copyright policy. And yet the copyright policy we actually did was mostly focused on producers. However, it seems to me that in like the late 20th, early 21st century, We've moved to a vision of copyright that kind of is author-centric in a way we always used to pretend that it was, but it wasn't really. And now it kind of became what we were describing, but not actually doing. Do you agree with that? Am, am I am I seeing the same picture you're seeing, or would you would you disagree with that assessment? So I don't think it would be accurate to characterize it as a revisionist take on the justifications to American copyright. The incentive theory has sort of always been the underpinning of the American copyright system. The incentive theory comes to us from the progress clause itself. The progress clause is Congress's enumerated power to create a system of copyrights. And that provision in the Constitution very explicitly says the whole goal here is to advance the arts and science and implicitly education with it. So the incentive concept, this utilitarian concept that copyright serves the greater public benefit has always been sort of the undercurrent to American copyright uh, in the United States. What changed kind of happened in the 1990s with the Feist case. It used to be that the courts took this concept of the sweat of the brow. We need to reward the labors of the authors very seriously. And this was a very important component to these older copyright cases. And in Feist, the Supreme Court said, sweat of the brow is irrelevant. We don't care about Locke's theory of labor. What matters is originality. The synchronon of copyright is originality. 
we have to reward authors who exhibit that modicum of originality we look for in new work. And I think that's part of what has made the discussion, the narrative around these generative AI tools so messy is that originality doesn't really matter. And authorship doesn't really matter because Congress can go and change what those things mean. They have the power to do that. Congress could decide tomorrow that ChatGPT could be an author now, and there's nothing in the Constitution that would limit them for doing that. They would not exceed their constitutional limitations, at least in my reading, by doing that. So the authorship question is important for the practitioners, for those on the ground trying to make art. But from a policy perspective, it's not really the important question. The important question is, what kind of marketplace is Congress trying to encourage the development of? And if it turns out that the goal of copyright has always been the commodification of art, and not in the pejorative sense, but the belief that by producing the most amount of work possible, getting the most amount of work out into the hands of the public and letting the market decide who the winners and losers are in expression, that could serve the goal of the progress clause. So maybe Congress is going to start thinking, you know, maybe the issue isn't that computers can be authors. Maybe the issue is that the bar for originality is too low and we're overprotecting in this space. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what I really like about your paper. I feel like everyone's talking about AI in relation to copyright now, but they're talking about things that frankly, I don't find very interesting. Right. I see a lot of people asking, well, you know, can AI be AI generated works be protected? I'm like, who cares? It doesn't matter either way. Answer it yes or no. It doesn't really make any difference to me. People ask, is creating an AI infringing? I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't be because this is a good tool. We want to use it for things and it does good stuff. And it would be ridiculous to say you can't do it for kind of formalistic reasons. I think you're asking the really interesting question, which is what, if anything, should this new technology tell us about the future of copyright policy? Because it seems to me the story you're telling in this paper is the story of copyright as a sort of function of technology. And we're at an inflection point where there's a new technology that's forcing us to think about what our copyright policy should look like in the future, if anything, right? So I I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about like sort of your vision of artificial technology as it stands and what you think it tells us about copyright policy and our goals. Sure. So I think one of the most important things to keep in mind here is how the technology works. And we're seeing a rash of litigation in this space now that's claiming that the data scrapping that these systems are doing is an act of reproduction under 106 of the act. And therefore, any output is a derivative of that reproduction and therefore is infringing. And I I, I argue in the paper that that's a misreading of what the technology does, because the technology is not copying what is being fed into the system. It's actually creating data points, tokenized representations of aspects of the work. You can call it the metadata of the composition of the particular work. And then trying to draw averaged conclusions based on the large information data set that's being used for the data scrapping. In the Getty Images complaint, one of their main exhibits, we'll call it exhibit, exhibit one or exhibit A, I forget what they actually use in the complaint itself, 
is a composition of a, a copyrighted picture of two soccer players that they hold the license to that has the Getty Images watermark on it. And then another purportedly infringing picture of two similar looking uh, soccer players in a similar pose. And Getty claims that that's proof of substantial similarity. And because the photograph, the database was data scrapped, now we have access, put the two together, you have an act of infringement. But the problem with that argument is that originality issue I was just talking about, right? How original is a picture of two soccer players? Much of the compositional information in that picture is not set by Getty. It's the facts of the game. It's the rules of the game. FIFA, for example, has very specific controls and rules about how soccer players are to appear. And the fact that two soccer players are in an action shot is a function of the game of soccer itself, not that Getty has done anything, or Getty's photographer in this case, who's licensed the photograph back to Getty, has done anything original with this context. And you can apply this to a number of outputs from the system. A dragon is a cultural concept. Nobody owns the idea of a dragon. Copyright law is willing to protect specific expressions of that. But think about how the typical artist learns how to make a representation of a dragon. They go and study what other people have done, other expressions, other versions of this metaphysical concept of a dragon to arrive at their own version of it. So I think it's a little, maybe not disingenuous, but maybe inaccurate to say that anything that uses our material is therefore infringing. And this also kind of runs afoul of some of the fair use case law, at least pre-Warhol, we could do another podcast on what I think about that particular opinion some other time. But the, the seminal case in this is the Google Books case, where Google Books clearly was engaged in transformative practices by scanning thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of books, not to create infringing works, not to create derivatives, not to create strict reproductions, but to allow scholars like you and I to mine the metadata of the books in ways that we just couldn't before. So to me, I just see generative AI as a next version application of that. Instead of mining books in a book collection, we're now mining visual and sometimes uh, audiovisual works for that metadata and seeing what the aggregated averages are, what trends in that data suggest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is one of the things I really took away from, from your paper, especially the kind of the historical arc that you chart in it, because it seems to me that for a really long time, like centuries, really, copyright was all about like ensuring that producers, ensuring that publishers could recoup the costs associated with reproduction distribution because those were super duper expensive and the primary kind of transaction cost associated with information goods. And then in the 20th and 21st century, as reproduction and distribution costs just plummeted to the point where now they're essentially zero, we started to think, oh, well, actually authorship is the big cost. That's where the, the cost center is. We need to incentivize authorship. And it seems to me like what you're saying and that what you're observing in this paper is really like AI is kind of telling us that a lot of kinds of authorship are actually not that costly, or at least we've kind of eliminated the cost associated with certain kinds of authorship. And maybe we should think about that in the same way we thought about eliminating costs in relation to, to publishing. Yeah, I think a lot of this comes back to originality, right? We need originality in copyright. Originality means human authorship. 
If we're going to take that as a normative statement, though, let's think about what that really means. It's saying that a work produced by a human has more either aesthetic or market value than one created by a machine, although we know in practice that these works are going to be perfect substitutes for one another at some point. If the consuming public cannot tell the difference, it doesn't matter if it's created by a machine or a person. Whether that's a good thing or not is a different public policy question, right? It's a totally different public policy question. It's one thing to say copyright should exist to encourage people to create works. It's another to say there's something unique about the human experience in creating art. And if we take that view, we're really aligning ourselves with the continental view on copyright now. So maybe the problem is that we're just defining the problem the wrong way. Maybe we need to be thinking about this from a moral rights perspective and need to have real conversations about strengthening attribution, mutilation, destruction rights here in the United States, which if we get really cynical or really textual, depending on you know what time of day we're having this conversation, one of the things to think about is whether the United States is in fact still compliant with burn as a result of these new technologies. And perhaps we're not. Congress has taken the attitude that the combination of trademark dilution and unfair competition is a sufficient stopgap to protect moral right equivalence in the United States. But now if the public is making a very clear statement that we believe that human-made art is exceptional, maybe it's time that we re-examine moral rights. And that's maybe something I'll do in a future paper because it goes a little bit beyond the, um, the question setting I do in this paper. Yeah, no, I think that's a really... I think it's a great point. I, I think it gets to something really fundamental that I'm seeing in your paper, it, kind of in other people working in the area and in the market writ large is that it seems to me in a lot of ways, copyright is becoming less and less important as a lot of the market failures that copyright was designed to solve start to disappear and that we're moving more and more into kind of a trademark-based world or a world in which authorship is really more about branding than it is about product. Yeah, I, I think it was um, Professor Lumford at FSU who wrote a paper on um, copyright as a means of controlling search costs in an abundance-built marketplace. And I think to some extent that's still true here. One of the benefits of not just throwing the baby out with the bathwater here is that copyright can be used to help consumers find, you know, the types of art that they actually want to engage with. But trademark also serves sort of an overlapping function in this space as well. It's getting to the point now where the modern audience isn't consuming a movie to consume the art in the movie anymore. They're consuming it as sort of a active expression in of itself that the family is going to see the latest Disney movie because that's what families do together is they go enjoy whatever the latest Disney content is. And the fact that the Disney trademark is stamped on this movie means that the parents of this family know the type of environment, the type of movie, the type of content they're going to get, even if they haven't viewed the movie ahead of time. They know that it's going to be age appropriate, that it's going to be child appropriate. So I think a point that you have raised in some of your other papers is that things like clout and provenance and authenticity are going to start mattering a lot more in the art space, even more so than they have in the past. That if there's an absolute deluge, a near post-scarcity amount of content out there, it's going to start mattering a lot more who's creating the content, that we want to engage as consumers with the artists who perhaps reflect our aesthetic judgments, our aesthetic values, our social values, our normative values, 
maybe we want to use or consume art from artists who are environmentally conscious or meet other social values that we as consumers have. So I think this is going to drive art as a form of personal expression, the consumption of the art itself as a form of personal consumption, uh, excuse me, personal personal self-actualization even more. No, I couldn't agree more. I think that all that all sounds like the future of the information good economy to me. And it's a little surprising to me that more people can't see that yet because it seems like that's the real story behind AI that I think you're really getting at in in this paper. Sort of like, what does it tell us about what we want to accomplish, why we want to accomplish it, and what we want to be consuming? Yeah, I, I think if you were going to ask me what I saw a potential future for this technology, beyond just cutting costs at the production stage, is think about how customized we can make art using these technologies. Imagine a world where instead of buying a specific movie, you engage with the platform on a subscription service basis, and you give parameters to the platform. You say, I would like you to give me a version of The Lion King with uh, Simba voiced to sound like my son, and then rename him to be my son, and then his friends can be the other supporting cast in the movie. And then the Disney controlled platform will create that new derivative using the technology. And then suddenly we have this whole new medium, this whole new way of engaging with art that didn't exist before. Think about it, a different take on the interactive mediums that we see exist in video games today, dialed up to 11. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Like the content industries have always been about technology, but it's just so hard to predict where that technology is going to take us next. And I think you're, you're, you're really doing a, a lot of great work kind of thinking about what the next steps are going to be and how we should prepare ourselves for them. So thanks so much, Zach, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it and I love the paper and look forward to seeing where you go next with it. Thanks so much, Brian. This was a lot of fun.